Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through bandcamp.com. Catalyst with a K, and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Therapies carry great promise for improving outcomes for people with cancer. The ability of cancers to evade the immune system and develop resistance limits their benefits as monotherapies. BioEclipse is developing therapies that marry activated immune cells with oncolytic viruses. Together, they provide a synergistic effect that attacks cancers while providing protection against relapse and recurrence. We spoke to Pamela Contag co-founder and CEO of BioEclipse, about the ability of cancers to return after treatment with immunotherapies. BioEclipse's efforts to develop a multi-mechanistic immunotherapy to overcome that challenge and why its approach may have broad application across a range of cancers. Pam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. This is a great opportunity and a great pleasure. We're going to talk about cancer, immunotherapies, and BioClips's efforts to develop a multi-mechanistic immunotherapy to overcome the ability of cancers to develop resistance and evade the immune system. Perhaps we can start there. What are the challenges that immunotherapies face, and how do tumors grow resistant and, and evade the immune system? Let me start by saying that's three different questions. First of all, um, anti-cancer immunity um, and immune evasion mechanisms are just being discovered. And we don't know, the immune system, especially in the micro, the tumor microenvironment is much like a black box. So if we want to um, reset that immunity, we have to learn a lot more about what is in that black box, the black box. And right now what we're doing is we're using things like um, uh, adoptive cell therapy, like CAR-T, um, and we're using uh, checkpoint inhibitors, and we're using you know, antibodies, and all of these different things, you know, um, vaccines against specific tumor antigens. We're using all of these things to um, help initiate some sort of passive immunity in that tumor microenvironment. And the reason that we have to do this is because a lot of people, you know, give the tumor itself um, malevolent characteristics, like it, you know, evades immunity. And, and what, what I think really happens is that these are very fast growing cells. 
um, there's a there's a deficiency in the beginning um, of either the cell control of the immune system um, that allows these cells to grow aggressively. And when you put pressure on them using therapy to try and cure them, uh, the ones that aren't specifically attacked by that therapy continue to grow. And so the, the challenge is, um, what is the therapy that can keep the tumor suppressed and not recur later on? And, and, and how do you approach those kind of therapies to eradicate the tumor once and for all? You know, I, I, I think, Dan, one of the um, well-known but unhappy facts about cancer is that um, many cancers are likely to reappear later in life. You know, as our immune, as our immune system uh, diminishes as we grow older, um, you know, it reminds me of how we knew originally that the immune system played such a huge role in cancer. And that is that when we used immunosuppressive drugs or when people had immune deficiencies, they tended to get tumors also. So it, it's a very complex question. And I think people are doing the best that they can to, um, the best that they can to approach it. We know a lot, we know a lot more than we used to, but there's still a lot of things that we don't know. How big a problem is recurrence and resistance with regards to immunotherapies today? So it depends upon, it depends upon the indication um, for the most part. And the reason is, is when we can, we treat those cancers. And if a patient fails a standard of care, most times they have recurring tumors. So for example, um, in, in ovarian cancer, uh, up, up Upwards around 70% to 80% of um, patients are resistant to the standard of care, which is usually platinum drugs. And one of the exciting things about ovarian cancer is that um, for the first time with immunotherapies, you know, we've been able to, you know, change um, that, uh, change the outcome for many of these patients. And so we're, we're hopeful. Um, you know, other other therapies um, for, say, breast cancer and prostate cancer um, are fairly um, well tolerated by patients. And if you catch the tumor with early diagnosis, there's a better outcome. So I look at it, you know, my, actually our technology, we specifically approach this really um, difficult question of refractory solid tumors. Um, and the reason we did that is because um, 90% of all cancers are solid tumors. But in clinical trials, only about 30% of clinical trials is directed towards solid tumors. And, and we found that to be not only a challenge, but a huge unmet market need. So, so when we think about refractory solid tumors, we're thinking um, patients that have um, gone through standard of care, their tumor becomes resistant to standard of care. And once they're resistant to standard of care, the tumor may reoccur. So that's the, that's the indication in the tumor type that we're addressing with our therapy. Do we know why there's been greater success with hematological cancers than solid tumors? 
So, first of all, um, when you have a solid tumor, you know, hematologic tumors are just that. Um, you know, a solid tumor has a certain definition. And so around the solid tumor, um, there builds up a really um, complex microenvironment. And this microenvironment is the home of um, different types of tumor immunity, like their ability to um, call in certain immune cells that, um, uh, that cause dysregulation when they're like Tregs um, that prevent other immune cells from entering that tumor microenvironment. Whereas hematologic cancers, um, first of all, many of them have really great biomarkers that you can, you can attack um, using either CAR-T or um, antibodies or chemotherapy. They're just more exposed tumors. So one thing that is interesting about hematologic tumors, I'm not saying they're easy. Many hematologic tumors um, have recurrence and have resistance. But if you think about it, if 90% of cancers are solid tumors, that means 10% are other things. So, so we have to be careful. Um, and and this, is, this is why BioClips chose, you know, refractory solid tumors, is that um, we have many, many more clinical trials going into um, patients with hematologic tumors because in some ways they are more, they're easier to approach. But we at BioClips think we should try to approach the hard thing. If we're not willing to approach the hard things and maybe sometimes fail, um, we won't find an answer. How well understood are the mechanisms that the tumor microenvironment uses to evade immunotherapies? I think some of those mechanisms are well understood, like the ability of the tumor to um, cleave some of the tumor-associated antigens that sit on the surface uh, that can be, you know, a target for therapies. Um, I always look at it like this, you know, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And if we knew everything about the tumor microenvironment, um, we would have probably cured cancer by now. So that's why sometimes I call it a black box. We know a lot about it. We know so much more now than we did before. And, um, and it's complex enough. So people, many scientists think that it's going to be very difficult to approach um, tumor therapy um, from the point of view of um, essentially uh, active immunotherapy. So, you know, attacking, attacking, uh, attacking the immune dysfunction that causes the tumor in the first place. And that is because that, um, that immunity <clears throat> on the part of that immunity on the part of the tumor um, has so many different cells involved in it. And all those cells are modulated in a different way. It's almost like, and this is, this is you know, where the precision medicine arose from, it's almost like each individual tumor is a different disease. I think that's the difficulty. The way that most immunotherapy developers have sought to address this problem is that they've turned to combination therapies, either 
using their own immunotherapies in combination with other immunotherapies or using it with other cancer agents like kinase inhibitors. Do, do you see this as a viable strategy? Absolutely. That's the fundamental principle of our, um, our immune therapy in that we're combining two different types of uh, uh, drug substances that work together. And I think the reason combined therapies are very interesting is because you can choose one with um, a specific mechanism of action and you can choose another with a different mechanism of action. So you're attacking two points on the tumor. So it's less likely that they would become resistant. I think one of the difficulties is that you have to make sure that these um, actions are not overlapping because if they're overlapping, a lot of times by combining, you can get an increase in toxicity. And that is something that you don't want to do as you're delivering a new therapy to a patient is increase the side effect profile. So it's, uh, it's a, uh, a great opportunity, but it can also be um, difficult. So what we did is we put together an immune cell and an oncolytic virus. Each has a different mechanism. They're different places in the tumor cycle to attack. And they also have a different relationship with the immune system. So there are synergies there instead of simply, you know, an additive mechanism. And one of the things that um, we see both um, for the independent monotherapies in human clinical trials is that uh, they have a really great safety profile. So when we combine them, because they have different mechanisms, we do not expect uh, anything but this excellent safety pro profile. Um, but again, that's safety is one of the reasons we run our, run our phase one trials. I think the other issue with combination therapies, if you don't develop them together, there becomes a logistics issue with two companies getting together with, you know, two different compounds and, um, and forming one therapy that gets to be delivered to patients. And I think that, and I think that the, the more, um, uh, I think to, the key to solving that problem is more partnerships and more collaborations. Walk me through each of those components and, and tell me how they work. First, start with the oncolytic viruses. What do they do and, and what's the limits of using them by themselves? Right. So there are multiple types of oncolytic viruses. And basically, these are viruses that um, are out there in nature that as we studied them, we learned that they had oncolytic properties. So in other words, when they found a tumor cell, it was a, a great place for them to replicate. And as they replicated, they killed the tumor cell. So, um, you know, if you want to uh, name a few, there's, you know, herpes, measles, um, rhabdo, and vaccinian. We happen to use vaccinia. Um, one of the challenges to using these is that these oncolytic viruses are very immunogenic. So when you, when you put them into um, uh, the system, so the vascular system of a human, um, uh, you generate an immune response. So you can use them once, essentially, or twice, essentially. But moreover, when you add a dose the immune system can reduce that dose very rapidly, sometimes within three days. 
So most of the dose of the virus that you give to the patient doesn't actually get to the tumor. One way to get around that, of course, is to um, inject the virus intertumorally. But that becomes a very difficult proposition if the tumor is deep within the body. Um, and again, even dosing intertumorally, you're going to get an immune response against the virus. There's a, a lot of different reasons the virus is also a very good, um, you know, a very good drug substance. And that's because once it's in the tumor, the tumor begins to signal to the immune system that it's infected. And so the innate immune system mounts a rapid response then against the tumor. And I think that is a really, um, uh, that's an appealing um, uh, way to activate the innate immune system. What all of us are trying to do is make a tumor-specific virus so that that virus also doesn't hurt any normal cells or there aren't um, uh, extreme side effects from the virus. And there's a lot of different things you can do, especially with these rather large viruses like vaccinovirus, like adding a payload. Just have to be careful that the payload um, also doesn't induce um, side effects. The other component to your therapy is cytokine-induced killer cells. What are they? How do they interact with cancer? And, and what are their, their limits as a monotherapy? Cytokine-induced killer cells are actually another form of T lymphocyte. The difference is, is that it shares... Um, the phenotype or the surface antigens, or it shares molecules on its surface that are both um, from natural killer cells and from T cells. It's considered a cell in the innate immune system. And when this CIK cell is treated with uh, molecules that, we, that are cytokines, so they're, they're essentially messenger molecules from cells and even from themselves, some people can, some, sorry, not people, some cells uh, within the patient can put out certain profiles of cytokines. And these cytokines are fairly well known, and we can use these cytokines to poise the CIK cell to perform a certain function. Um, and the function that we, you know, we take these cells outside the body, we um, expand them, and we treat them with cytokines to poise them to be able to, when, they, when the cells are reinfused in the patients, they can migrate towards the tumor because they have um, chemokine receptors. They have, they have the ability to chemotax and they have the ability to leave the vasculature through the tight junctions and enter the tumor microenvironment. There are reports, and it seems that in our hands, these cells actually can circumvent um, some of the um, issues with tumor immunity. So even with Tregs in the tumor microenvironment, these cells can enter and attach to the tumor cells. And when they bind to the tumor cells with a, you know, a, a tumor-specific antigen, they can actually kill the tumor cell in, in both preclinical studies and clinical studies, what we see is that, um, is that the efficacy is relatively low. So I think that the, the main issue with CIK cells alone is that um, if the tumor is growing very aggressively, 
there's not, you can't in, you can't put enough CIK cells in a person to attack every single tumor cell. So what you then have to rely on is that um, these CIK cells can um, modulate the um, the immune system within the tumor microenvironment. And in some patients, a um, a durable immune response is generated against the tumor. Um, but this isn't uh, this isn't reliable in every patient and um, and it depends specifically on the patient's um, own immune system. The reason that we put the oncolytic virus with the CIK cell is because one of the things that um, researchers at Stanford University noticed was that when the immune cell was pre-infected with the virus the virus didn't replicate an immune cell. So we use this very certain kind of virus um, that has two genes knocked out. And there are two genes that are knocked out that are um, responsible for viral replication. Thus, this virus selectively replicates in tumor cells because the genes that are knocked out are those genes that are related to um, a they're related to replication, and the tumor is such a highly replicating um, cell that the virus steals the replication components from the tumor cell and uses it to replicate itself. Thus, when we put this virus in a normal, healthy immune cell, it really doesn't start replicating. The immune cell and the virus um, essentially uh, exist together, and the immune cell keeps the viral replication suppressed until it gets to the tumor cell. And then when it binds to the tumor cell, it's secreting molecules like perforin. Uh, the, the virus begins to replicate and the virus infects the tumor cell. Essentially, we're using the CIK cell as a platform. It's a tumor finding cell and we're using it as, as a platform to deliver the oncolytic virus to the tumor. How do you engineer your therapies and what considerations go into selecting the elements? What do you have to do to marry them together? This is a case, I think, of a little bit of 2020 hindsight. Um, I think it wasn't realized at first um, how successful the marriage of these two would be. We were just thinking, hey, let's hide the virus in the cell. And um, just so happened in that space and time, you know, people that knew a lot about CIK cells and people that knew a lot about the virus um, were in laboratories next to each other. So they did the experiment. But then as they studied what was going on, they realized that, um, that the cell could hide the virus for a really unusual period of time. So um, it could hide the virus for 48 hours or longer Whereas in a normal cell or in a tumor cell, the virus would start replicating within four hours. That's the normal time a virus takes to start replicating in a cell. It's called an eclipse period. And that's why our company is named BioEclipse, because when we put the two together, the CIK cell hides the virus for a long period of time. Your lead experimental therapy is CRX100. What is it and how broadly applicable do you think it might be? 
So the technology that BioEclipse licensed out of Stanford um, had been tested in multiple different kinds of animal models. And what we did is we, um, we brought it inside the company and we actually scaled it up inside the company. And then we, um, we transferred that technology to a manufacturing site in order to make the cells. And then we also separately made the virus. And when we brought them together, we spent a lot of time working on how do we um, make this a consistent therapy? How do we stabilize this therapy so that we can actually deliver it to a patient? Are there ways in which we can make it um, you know, easier access and lower cost? And so um, while we were working on those different problems, um, we realized that we realized that many different tumors could be infected with this virus. So if we can get this virus into those tumors, um, this, uh, this lysis of the primary tumor could be pretty extreme. And then we thought about um, other types of payloads that would help. And our first drug going out, which is CRX100, is the basic form of the virus inside the basic form, which is, it's called a double deleted virus, inside the basic form of the CIK cell. And it has, um, it, it has activity against most tumors that have an activated RAS pathway. That's about 70% of all tumors. So what we did is we picked for our phase one clinical trial, six indications that showed um, uh, the ability to be infected by the virus, the, um, the ability to um, uh, essentially enter the tumor and utilize that RAS pathway. Um, we also picked uh, tumors that had um, uh, ligands that the CIK cells were attracted to and could bind to. And that's where we're going to start. And then using this platform, what we're planning is to first of all, make it readily accessible by putting the two together and being able to freeze them and deliver them directly to a, um, to a clinical site. But also, this is one of those large viruses I was talking about. We can add payload to the virus, but we can also add payload to the cell. And one of the things we've done within BioClips is we're really taking the time to study the specific interaction between the virus and the cell. And I think that information will really um, go a long way in broadening the tumor types that we're able to um, direct this therapy against. What's known about the activity of CRX100 to date? All of the knowledge we have about CRX100 to date comes from testing the CIK cells together with the virus in preclinical models. And it comes from testing the CIK cells alone and the virus alone in in clinical studies in humans. So those studies have been done and uh, the cells have been tracked to tumors. Um, they've looked at the efficacy and that is the same with the virus. Uh, intertumorally and intravenously, the virus has been delivered. They've measured the effect on, on the tumor and, um, and measured the response of the immune system. So in our phase one, this is the first time CRX100 will be put in humans. And what's the clinical path forward? Well, the clinical path forward is 
um, first of all, get, you know, figure out in this first trial um, what the best dose is, um, what, the, what any safety concerns are, um, how, pa how patients tolerate C uh, CRX100. I think the, the next step is to give it to a broader set of patients in each different indication. Um, so we can understand more about what's happening in the tumor microenvironment and, um, and, and how each different indication is probably um, uh, going to have somewhat of a different reaction to this therapy. And then, and then we'll move out and do many more indications. We'll start, you know, new phase ones and new indications, and we'll drive this particular therapy through to approval rehab. How are you prioritizing indications to pursue, and, and what considerations are you weighing in those decisions? We chose the first indications along um, several different parameters. One is that. Um, we had to um, we had to have tested um, that particular tumor type in a preclinical model. Secondly, um, it had to have been known that patients' tumors um, carried many of these targets. So, um, a target that that binds the CIK cell, um, the activated RAS pathway. Um, you know, they have. Uh, uh, abnormal vasculature, so fulsome abnormal vasculature, which the CIK cells are attracted to. And then we looked at the tumors in terms of, um, you know, high unmet need. For example, osteosarcoma can actually be a rare tumor, and there's a very high unmet need as it, um, as it, many patients are pediatric patients. Or, or young adults. So that was one reason we included osteosarcoma. Um, other, other types of um, indications, hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, in some parts of the world, this is a, a very serious cancer. It can also be considered a rare cancer. Um, then um, triple negative breast. Triple negative breast has a very high unmet need because it, it, it doesn't have biomarkers that you can test and direct a therapy against. And so one of the things that I think is an advantage to our therapy is we don't require a specific biomarker before we test it. So um, we have more indications open for us. Um, ovarian cancer, this, this um, technology has proven very effective against ovarian cancer in preclinical studies. So that's how we prioritize by um, what's been effective in preclinical studies and what's a high unmet need. Pamela Contact, co-founder and CEO of BioEclipse Therapeutics. Pam, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dan. Very nice to meet you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. 
Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.